0: Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. Thank you, Jeff, for sharing your story with us. Just a reminder to our church body, everybody here has a story. And God's at work. We're a church, we say that we exist to connect people to Jesus for life change, and life change looks different in many of our lives. And your story may not be like my story, and my story might be different than Jeff's story, but maybe you connected with Jeff's story. And uh, just so you know, uh, when we show these videos, they're real people in our church. We don't pull these like off the internet randomly. (laughs) Um, So Jeff goes to church here. Maybe you've met him before. He's one of the leaders in our usher team. And so if you're going out the doors today, and maybe his story resonated with you, what I love about his story is that he shows that it's, it's possible to have proximity to Jesus without intimacy with Jesus. And some of you may be feeling that or sensing that in your own spiritual journey and you're wondering what's going on. And I just encourage you, say, hey, Jeff, you wanna go grab coffee? You wanna grab lunch, dinner? Just some kind of get together. Where's your small group? Maybe I can come to your small group some night we can talk a little bit more about this. And uh, the Bible says that as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another person. And he may want to use Jeff's story in your life. And if that's so, I encourage you to take next steps. Other than that, there's more than just a two and three minute version of his story, just FYI. Uh, none of us can capture all of the details of our, our life story in two or three minutes. But you saw some of the highlights and God's at work. Amen? And uh, hopefully he's at work in your life. Are you ready for him to do something in your life today? How do you know? He might want to do something you're not ready for. How can you even answer that question? You ready for what you're not ready for? All right, because we're going to open up God's Word. You never know what's going to happen. God's Word is His revelation of Himself. So we're about to get a glimpse of God, and He might want to transform you in the process. So let's pray, and then we're going to open the Bibles. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 today, uh, continuing in our series we've been doing called Letters to RDU. Now, maybe you're a guest here today, and you're wondering, why are you calling the Letters to RDU? if it's a letter that was written like 2,000 years ago, because so much of what was happening in the church of Corinth is happening in the triangle today. That's why, that's the summary version. Same temptations we have, same topics that we're dealing with, same things stirring in their hearts or stirring in our hearts. And so we're gonna open that up and we're gonna ask God to open us up. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your presence in our midst. We saw last week that we are your temple, that you dwell as the church gathers together, that you dwell in a unique way when we're gathered like this. God, I pray you'd speak to our hearts in ways you haven't all week. People that maybe have been in your word a bunch and people that maybe have drifted from you and all kinds of stuff has happened. God, remind us of who you are, remind us of your presence with us, remind us of your love, that nothing can separate us from your love. As we open up your word, you say that your word is like a mirror. I pray that none of us would be people that would walk away and forget what we see, that we'd see you, that you would reveal things about ourselves, and God, that we'd become doers of your word. And God, I pray that today's message, that we would tangibly, there'd be something that we would do as a result, each one of us, different stories, different lives, hundreds of lives in this room, God. And I I pray, God, that you'd speak to each one of us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let me ask you this so we get started today. Have you ever been entrusted with something valuable? Somebody hands you something, maybe it's theirs, you borrowed it, or remember when you were 16 or 17, or maybe some of you have kids that are 16 or 17, and you ask your parents, can I borrow the car, mom? And they, for some reason it seems foolish now as a parent, but they gave you the keys. And maybe you were a good steward, maybe like me, you wrecked your mom's car, or different things happen. Maybe you've babysat before. Think about that for a second. Somebody's saying, we trust you with our kids. <laughs> oh boy, I remember becoming a parent, thinking, God, what are you doing? <laughs> or maybe at work. Maybe you've got a job where you oversee some people or a project. Someone's entr- they've given you a trust. You think about our money. God's given us, he's entrusted us with a certain amount of money. It's all his, and it's how are we gonna use that money? I was reading a story a couple weeks ago about a woman who plays a lottery every day she got a system for how she plays the lottery. She's got a little journal. When she buys a ticket, she writes down what the numbers are in her journal. Then kind of her filing system, she gives the ticket to her husband. And the husband took this one ticket, he threw it away. And it was a winner. For $181 million. And he just took the ticket and thought, maybe she just wastes her money? Tossed that ticket in the trash? They couldn't find it. Now let me tell you something, just a little preview of what's gonna happen when we go through 1 Corinthians. We're eventually gonna get to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I don't know if it'll be in 2019, but we're gonna get to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is the love chapter. You know what it says about biblical love? That it keeps no record of wrongs. Now if if I were that lady and my husband threw away a $181 million ticket, do you know how many times in our marriage I would wanna say back to him, You threw away a hundred, remember the time you threw away $181 million? Honey, did you go pick up the dry cleaning? Remember when you threw away $181 million? Sweetheart, do you think you can do the dishes tonight? I don't think I'm doing the dishes. You're doing the dishes. Remember when you threw away $181 million? That's a lot of money. But we're going to talk about today, the reason why I'm telling you this story is because we're going to talk about something that God's put in our hands, he's entrusted us with. This is worth far more than $181 million. I've entitled today's message Entrusted, and we're going to talk about how God has trusted us. Now, for some of you, maybe you grew up in church, and that almost sounds like wrong. Like God doesn't trust. We trust God. He doesn't trust us. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not in your own understanding, and all your ways. Put all your weight on him. Acknowledge him, and he'll direct your paths. He'll make your path straight. We've got to trust God for eternal life. We've got to trust God for provision daily. We've got to trust God for every breath that's in our lungs. And so we think about our trust, and then to say that God trusts us, here's what you need to know. The way he trusts us is different. See, we trust him like we rely on him and bank on him to do things for us that we cannot do for ourselves. That's not how he trusts us. He's not asking us to do things for him that he can't do for himself. But what, the way that he trusts us is he takes things that are incredibly valuable and he puts them in our hands. He's entrusting us with those things. And today, there's gonna to be two main points, and I'm gonna ask them in the form of a question, but the main word in each one of them starts with an M, and neither one of them have to do with money, just so you know. So those of you who are thinking, uh-oh, this is a message on stewardship, start grabbing your wallet, preacher's gonna try and get in my pockets, no. When the Bible talks about money, we will talk about money. This passage is not about money, it's about something that's worth way more. And the question for you to ask yourself, because we don't wanna just be hearers, the word wanna be doers, I just want you to learn some verses today and tell you some stuff maybe you didn't know about those verses, But as we're walking through this passage, ask yourself this question. Am I trustworthy? Am I trustworthy with the things that God, maybe the things that we're talking about from this passage, maybe God wants to speak to your heart about something else in your life. Am I trustworthy with the things that God has given me? I'm going to see two big ones in the passage today. If you've got your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 4 is where I'm going to start reading from. Remember what's happening here, just to give you the context, is that there's, there's one main problem that's being dealt with in the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians. Now, there's a lot of other problems in the church. Next week, we're going to talk about sexual sin, and then we're going to talk about how they abuse the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, how they're abusing their spiritual gifts. They don't really understand love. Like, there's theological issues they're debating in chapters 8 through 10, but the first four chapters is all about the divi- disunity, the division that's happening in the church. Some are saying, I follow Paul. Some are saying, I follow Cephas. Some are saying, I follow Apollos. They're picking their favorite preachers. They're trying to get their identity in that. Last week we talked about they had mistaken identity, which I laugh at God's sense of humor. Just FYI, I didn't tell the first service this. So you little, it's because you slept longer. Maybe you're more attentive. Uh, let me tell you, do you know what happened to me on Monday when I went to the office? I went in on Monday. If you're a leader in our church, you know what happened. Small group leader, an elder, different things. My phone started blowing up between about eight and nine o'clock because people started texting me, do you need help? Hey, I got this email. Is this really from you? You've got some really bad grammar if it is. And they're telling me all this stuff. Somebody had taken an e- made up an email address and tried to get money. They went to our church website and tried to get leaders in our church to give them money. <laughs> By the way, if you ever think I'm asking you for money, you can come and talk to me face to face. They were using my identity to try and get money from some of the leaders in our church. It was a scam. Our staff was great, figured it all out, ended up clearing up the whole, the whole mess. But I thought to myself afterwards, how ironic. Yesterday I was preaching on mistaken identity. Today somebody's trying to use my identity to steal money from people that I care about. How about that? And it reminded me of a truth. When God's at work, Satan's often at work too. And I, I thought to myself, it's almost like Satan was listening yesterday. And he wants to steal, kill, and destroy, just so you don't. Know. And he doesn't want you to remember any of the stuff we talked about last week and he doesn't want you to know the stuff we're gonna talk about this week. And he wants to lead you into a path of deception so you can ruin your life. Last week we talked about our identity and how our identity is that we're God's temple. When we gather together, all y'all, you guys, whatever translation you like, you're all God's temple. And then when we gather together, different than when we're scattered, we are the church universal when we're scattered, but when we're gathered as the local church on the foundation of Jesus Christ, that God is uniquely present in our midst as we teach, as we pray, as we praise God, as we take communion, as we do those things, that God's present in a unique way. That's who you are. And we talked about who you are in Christ and that you own it all, but then remember we ended with your identity in Christ is not just about who you are in Christ, but about whose you are in Christ. You are Christ, and Christ is God. You are bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's where Paul ended last week. And this week, what he talks about, is, let me talk about some of the stuff you've been given. Let me talk about what you've been entrusted with. And he uses himself and Apollos as examples. Now, he's going to talk about himself in these first five verses. You're going to say, well, does this just apply to him as an apostle or does it apply to all of us? And verses 14 through 21, which we don't want to get to today, he's going to talk about imitate me. He's using his life as an example, and the, the truths that are applicable to all of us. And so look at it. 1 Corinthians chapter four, verses one through five. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards, there's one test, that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. And remember, some of them are saying, Paul's awesome, and they're following Paul, and some of them are saying, no, Paul's not my guy, I'm following Apollos. So I don't care about all that stuff, what you think about me. In fact, I don't even judge myself. What he says next flies in the face of what you'll hear in Sunday school classes, small groups, lots of Christian gatherings that comes across as biblical advice. It's not biblical. Let your conscience be your guide. <laughs> the problem with your conscience, it can be very off. And we tend to think better of ourselves than we do than we are. And so Paul says this, for I'm not aware of anything against myself. I don't have sin that I know that I haven't dealt with. But I'm not there by, acqu- that doesn't mean everything's cool. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart, even motives. Then each one will receive his, doesn't say condemnation, commendation from God. So there's a day of judgment coming. The one who's gonna judge is the one who's given us the trust. What has he entrusted us with? We see here, what Paul does is he changes the analogy. Remember, he's used three different analogies in chapter 3. We're a field, we're a building. He talks about we're God's temple. And now it gets even more intimate, here he talks about, that in the household, It's a household analogy that he's using, when he talks about being a steward. What do we know about being a steward? Well, if you look at the passage, he said before he said stewards, he said servant. So we know that this is a serving role, that whatever it means to be a steward, it starts with the fact that we're servants of Christ. This is not some position that's like, oh, this, this, they're the highest person. If you wanna be great, you become the lowest. And the reason why you can get low, we talked about last week, is because of your security and who you are in Christ. You've been given all things. So you can be a servant. What does it mean to be this kind of servant? A steward. The Greek word is oikonomos. It means house manager. Another lottery illustration. I don't know if you saw this week, uh, the biggest jackpot that's ever happened for one person, 1.5 billion dollars was won back in October and the person didn't claim their money because they were figuring out how to do it anonymously. And so this person came forward this week, I think it was like Tuesday or Wednesday. I don't have any idea, I guess they live in South Carolina. Maybe you've got some friends in South Carolina. Might want to check in with them. I think there's won $1.5 billion. Can you imagine if that was one of your friends? And they were trying to be anonymous though, so you didn't even know it. But one day they came up to you and they just said, Here's the keys to my house. Here's my portfolio. I want you to take care of it. You can live in my house, you can use my stuff. You're responsible for it. I don't want to deal with it. more money, more problems. I'm out. But I'm gonna come back, it's not yours, but I'm gonna give it to you to use and manage. I'm going to check back in at some point. Then who holds you accountable is the person whose stuff it was. And you're a You don't own it. You're not an owner. You're a steward. You're a manager of the house. See, we don't have that very often. So I try to use a modern day analogy. But in the biblical times, what would happen is that masters, lords that would have big estates, they'd take one of their servants, the one they thought was most trustworthy, and they'd give them the keys to the house. They'd entrust them with, you manage all the food in the house. You manage the finances of the house. You even raise my children. Take care of, teach my son how to be a man. Teach my daughter how to be a woman. Teach them the way. Teach them the truth. If you're unfaithful, I'm going to take the trust back. But if you're faithful, we'll incre- keep increasing the trust as the estate grows and you make investments. Joseph, great example in the Old Testament for Pharaoh. Just a steward. Luke chapter 16, we see it. Matthew chapter 25, we see these parables being shown. That it's not part of our culture normally. Everybody's kind of individual. We do our own thing. We got our stuff. That's how it was there, though. You, you manage these things, and God's saying this is who we are. So what has he entrusted us with? Did you see verse 1? Not talking about money. What's he talking about there? Not talking about houses. Something far more valuable. He says, we're servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So our first point will be a question today is this. The question to ask ourselves is, are you faithful with the mysteries of God? Are you faithful with God's mysteries? And before you can answer that question, of course, you've got to go, well, what, are, what are God's mysteries? What are you talking about? A lot of us, when we think about mysteries, we think about maybe a novel or a movie that we've seen, and I don't know, how many of you here when you're reading a book like that, you skip to the end, you read to, jump to the back, I wanna see who did it, what happened there? Or if you're watching a movie, you'll guess, and maybe some of you will even guess out loud, like me. Anybody else here? Identify, self-identify, go ahead and confess your sins, it's fine, we're at church. I do that, my wife hates it, by the way. <laughs> and so she tell me, I asked her this week, I was like, does that annoy you when I guess? She, yes, that does annoy me when you do that. The good news is she usually falls asleep halfway through a show, so I can guess all the stuff I want. And you did not even know. Amen, right? Everything. And so a lot of us, the, the, those of you who raised your hand, you know what it's like. You see a mystery or you think of a mystery and it's like, for you, it's a, a puzzle to solve. It's like, how do I, where do the pieces go? And, how's it ch- and don't you hate it when they bring in facts you didn't know partway through? And it's like, well, that changed the whole, well, of course I had to change my answer. It changed the whole thing. See, that's not what a mystery is like in the New Testament, just so you know. When you read, the word mystery in the New Testament, get rid of that thinking, here's what it means when you see, and it's not just in this verse, it's in multiple places in the New Testament, when you read the word mystery, it means this, something that was previously hidden, you'd have never figured out on your own, God's now made known. So something that was hidden at one time, Old Testament, now it's been made known. Now it's stated so clearly in the Old Testament, how come they didn't know? Well, the same word that's used in chapter four and verse one is used in 1 Corinthians chapter two and verse seven, which tells us what he means in chapter four, the mysteries are. So if you got your Bible, you can flip over uh, just one page and you see there, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7, says, But we impart to you a secret and hidden wisdom. It's translated secret and hidden wisdom here. It's the same word. But we impart to you a mystery of God, which God decreed before the ages. So this has always been God's plan for our glory. But what is it? What is it he's talking about? It's the gospel, it's the cross of Christ. And how do we know that? Well, because context always gives us meaning. And verse 8 tells us the answer to what he's talking about in verse 7. Verse 8, chapter 2, says this. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If they understood that Jesus Christ was going to come as a suffering servant, as a Messiah that would be rejected and killed, crucified, and raised, they wouldn't have crucified him. So God kept that hidden from their eyes, their ears. They couldn't hear it. Though seeing you do not perceive, though hearing you do not hear and understand. That's because God didn't reveal it to them. Then we know that it's the gospel, which makes the, uh, the next verse in chapter 2 incredible. You never, you don't, no one's ever seen this. No one's ever thought of this. No one's ever heard of this. No one would have ever thought of the gospel. Think about the, the good news the gospel is. It's this news that God saw that we had a problem that was unsolvable. He's holy, can't have unholiness in his presence. He wants relationship with us, but we're unholy. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. So what does he do? Well, we'd come up with some way where we could work off the bad stuff. That never works. So you break the law in one way, you break breaking the whole thing. So you can never be in his presence. So he decides to put on flesh to come here, live a holy life, live the life we could never live, a sinless life. And then be crucified. No one took his life. He laid it down. Jesus wasn't crucified because the Romans crucified him. He wasn't crucified because he was rejected by the Jews. He laid his life down. He's giving it for you. The story of the gospel is a story of substitution. He was dying the death that you deserve to die in your place for you. And then that, like Seth would say, said earlier, Pastor Seth, he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. That's the greatest news in all the world. That's the mystery of God that you'd have never figured out. In fact, Verse 10 in chapter two says it like this. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. See, we wouldn't know unless God himself revealed it to us through his Holy Spirit, which he gives us when we trust Jesus as our Savior. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Remember when we talked about this in chapter two, that the Holy Spirit's a better search engine than Google? That we have an infinite God, and we don't even know a fraction of a percentage of the truths about God, but he's revealed to us the Gospel And as a follower of Jesus Christ, he's put that mystery of the gospel in your hands. He's entrusted you with it. So how can we be faithful? That's the question. How can we be faithful? And I think there's multiple answers to that. There's three that I might share with you today. It depends on how we're doing on time, but I'll give you at least two for sure. And the first one is this. We've got to value the gospel. And so the way that I phrase it for you, those of you who like to take notes, is, is do you cherish the gospel? We must cherish. You must cherish the gift of the gospel. And to cherish it means to to hold it in high esteem, that you realize how valuable what's been placed in your hands. And Paul tells us in verses one through five here that he's using himself and Apollos as examples. Just think about their example. Paul was wrecked by the gospel. You read the first story of him coming into contact with the risen Christ in Acts chapter nine. He was going, he was persecuting the church, and then just look at his life after that. He says, imitate me. He calls himself a spiritual father later in this passage, verses 14 through 21. And what he's, saying, what he's saying is, look at my life. What is his life? He then, his whole life then becomes starting churches. He was persecuting churches. Now he goes around and he's risking his life. Read Second 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He gets beaten, shipwrecked, abandoned, loses his friends. People try to kill him, stoned, left for dead. God raises him back up. He goes, and he just keeps going and starting these churches. Why? Why does that happen? Philippians chapter 3 tells us. And we talk about stewardship. He's using accounting language in Philippians chapter 3. And he says, "Whatever it was to my prophet?" so says, you know the prophet column, prophet and loss sheets?" He said, "I'll consider it a loss. Consider everything a waste." He said, "I was wasting my life with all that stuff before. But now, now my goal, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection, I want even the fellowship of his suffering. That's why I want to know Jesus. I want other people to know Jesus. And that's why you see in the book of Acts three different times in in this one book, Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 22, Acts chapter 26, that he's sharing the story of how the gospel wrecked his life. Do you know why? Because he cherished the gospel. Do you? Because some of us, we think about the gospel like it's the starting point in our spiritual journey, and we forget the fact it is the point of our spiritual journey. And we, we stop sharing the gospel, we stop preaching the gospel, we stop preaching it to ourselves, which if we would just preach the gospel to ourselves, we'd start sharing it a lot more with other people, just so you know. Because what, what an incredible truth. That's why we realize how valuable it is. That you're so loved, there's nothing you can do to make God love you more, there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. That you're, you've been forgiven. You can't outrun the cross of Christ. You can't outsin the cross of Christ. That we, You don't realize how that would impact our relationship, how we'd forgive each other. Why do you think it is that when Paul talks about marriage, he doesn't talk about marriage and give like, here's three principles on how to fight well. Here's five things you need to know about managing your finances. How come he says, here's what marriage is supposed to be the point of? The gospel. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands. Show them respect. Do you know why? Because the gospel should invade every area of our life, and then it would impact every relationship we have, all the decisions we have. But many of us as Christians, we don't value it that much. So it's just like, yeah, the gospel. I got the gospel. Where did that lottery ticket go? That's not $181 million. No one rushed the stage afterwards. But I got the gospel. Look back here. It was a good part of my life back when I trusted Jesus. Now move on. And we don't talk about it much. We don't value it much. Do you realize the gospel, Romans 1 16, is the power of God unto salvation? In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, when we came in verse 17, it said there's a way to preach the gospel, it empties it of this power, but it says those who are being saved is the power of God, Romans, or 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18, that we have the most valuable good news in all of the universe. The angels long to know the gospel the way that you and I can know the gospel. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 12, in fact, says it like this. It was revealed to them, talking about Old Testament prophets, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. They were writing the, the they realized they were saying things, people who wrote on scripture, they were saying things that were actually applicable to people far in the future that they didn't even understand all the implications of. Serving not themselves but you, and things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the, and that could be translated, gospel, you good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And look at this last phrase, things into which angels long to look. See, an angel will never know the gospel the way that you do if you know what it is to be lost and then found, to be blind and now see, to be without hope and without God and to be reconciled to your Savior. That's the gospel. Do you value the gospel? When we value the gospel, we should then invest the gospel. That's the second thing you wanna be faithful, you wanna know whether you're faithful, you're trustworthy with the gospel, then you must invest the gift of the gospel. And I chose the word invest on purpose. I intentionally didn't say the word share. Because when we say the word share, a lot of times the image that we get is I'm giving you something and as a result of that, I'm gonna have less when I'm done. So if we're hanging out and I'm at a pizza place and you come up and I've ordered a pizza, it's got 10 slices on it and you're like, hey, can I have some of your pizza? Unless I'm a total glutton, I'm like, yeah, you can have some of my pizza. And you eat two or three pieces. Depends on who you are. Just one for you, I'm sure. It's a low-carb thing, but it's okay. And uh, I only have nine pieces left now when I share with you. But do you realize something about God's investment strategy? Is that when you invest for the kingdom, store up treasures in heaven, Matthew chapter 6, that you always end up with more when you're done? I remember I, uh, the guy who told me about Jesus, I started meeting with him afterwards, saying, hey, I don't understand the Bible, teach me stuff. And he told me, he shared an analogy with me that's always stuck with me. He said, it's like you got a pool in your backyard, and the pool, instead of it being filled up with water, is filled up with money. I was like, that's a cool pool. How much does that cost? You know, the pool is filled up with money in your backyard. And he said, and every time you take money out, it fills itself back up. And he said, now imagine you have a friend who has a need, financially, pay their mortgage, pay for a surgery for a relative, buy groceries, whatever it is. What kind of jerk do you have to be not to give them some of that money? He says that's what it's like with the gospel. No matter how much you give away, you never run out. In fact, you grow in what you have because as you share the gospel and you see lives transformed, you know what ends up happening? It reinforces your own faith and you see there's people that have different stories than you but that God still works in their lives as he's connecting people to Jesus so their life can be changed and transformed. And you see the power of the gospel and you start preaching it to yourself and it starts impacting other areas of your life. See, that's what it's like to to invest the gospel. We don't realize the value. Let me give you, if you want to know the value of knowing the truth of the gospel, I'll give you a one-verse parable. It's Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, where Jesus is teaching and he says, the kingdom of heaven is like, and he gives these parables, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field and there's a man who finds it. And he goes and sells, all, oh wait, I messed it up. In his joy, he goes and sells all he has to purchase that field because he realizes what he's getting. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, if I said to you, hey, this is $181 million, I'll give it to you, you just have to agree to be blinded to the gospel again to go back and be lost. Anybody who understands the gospel would say that. No way. It's not, it's not worth $1.5 billion. It's not worth all the money in the world to be blind to the gospel because what we have is so valuable. Do you realize, though, that money is just a test for whether or not we can be entrusted with the gospel? Jesus tells another parable in Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, it's about a steward who's been uh, given reign over his master's house and over his money, and he's been doing a bad job. He's just been wasting it all on himself. And he finds out judgment day is coming. Like we talked about in verses uh, 3, 4, and 5 here. The judgment day is going to come. He finds the master's coming back. He can find out whether you're faithful. And so he starts scrambles. He starts becoming at the end of his life kind of image. He starts becoming a good steward really, really fast at the end. And then Jesus shares at the end of that in Luke chapter 16. Do we have the verse from Luke chapter 16 put up on the screen? If then you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth. That's money. Who will entrust you with true riches? What are the true riches? Well, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we talked about treasures in heaven. Do You know one of the treasures in heaven? Paul talks about it, First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19. Those of you who are taking notes, you want to look that up later. He talks about the Thessalonians themselves. They're his joy and crown. It's the people who we've invested in. How do we invest in them? By giving them seeds of the gospel. And the gospel, because it's the power of salvation, saves them, transforms them. Who's going to greet you when you get to heaven? It's those people that you invested the gospel in. They're going to be your crown and your joy. But if I can't even trust you with money, the master's saying, Jesus, how can I trust you with souls, with true riches? And so the question for us is do we invest the gospel? The answer is, for most Christians, no. Just so you know, the statistics are there. I don't know what the answer is for you, but for most Christians, the answer is no. By the most liberal statistics, and by liberal, I mean they're the most generous that are out there. A third of the world claims to be followers of Christ. There's 7.5 billion people in the world. That's about two and a half billion people. Now, the way that they get those stats, it can be any kind of identification with Jesus. Somebody took a survey: Are you a Christian? Are you Muslim? Are you what was witness? Are you what? And they said, Yeah, I'm a Christian. They voted a certain way, like any kind of identification with Christ. So we know that that number is way high, right? It's probably not 2.5 billion. But if it is, just say that it is. That means there's five billion people in the world that, if they die today, they're spending eternity separated from God in hell. Now let me share with you some statistics from Lifeway Research about how much Christians share their faith in America. They say, and these are a little bit dated, these don't tend to get better, says 20% of Christians don't even think it's their responsibility to share the gospel. That means 20% of people that identify as Christians don't even know, 1 Corinthians chapter four, that they have been entrusted with the mysteries of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They don't know the Great Commission. That's our job. Go make disciples. You are my witnesses, Acts 1-8. They don't even know that. They don't believe that's true. And 61% have not shared the gospel with someone in the last six months. Now, let me put that in perspective for you. Can you imagine if you had a job and you didn't show up for it for six months? I'm not talking about working remotely. Like, you didn't do your job for six months. You know what happened? You're fired. one. You're out. You lose your job. We have one job to do, Christians, just so you know. There's one thing that we can do here we're not gonna get to do in heaven is tell lost people how to be found. When we get to heaven, we're gonna be able to praise God. When we get to heaven, we're gonna have fellowship. When we get to heaven, we're still gonna learn. We're not just gonna know everything. We're gonna learn when we get to heaven. We're gonna have all kinds of incredible experiences in heaven. The experience we're not gonna be able to have is telling a lost person how to be found. So for 182 days, six months, 60, the vast majority, 61%, born again followers of Jesus Christ haven't even told somebody the gospel. Now, I was sharing with our staff. Uh, we, we, we have staff meetings once a week and about 16 of us gather together on Tuesdays and we talk through, how's the vision happening? Because so if we talk about the vision of this church, connect people to Jesus for life, is it really happening? If not, we're wasting our time. And we'll tell stories about what's happening in different people's lives and how God's transforming people's lives. And I was telling a story about somebody who had placed their faith in Jesus, which is a regular occurrence at our church. which is awesome, by the way. And I was telling them, I said, do you realize I'm telling you the same story this week that I told you last week? It's just a different name and they're different people and it was so incredible because what happened with both those stories is there were people in our church that had been sharing the gospel, investing in other people's lives, praying for them, but then somebody in our staff got to lead them to Jesus and that just, that's just the reaping part, but you were planting and sowing and doing all, the, all this work and that's what we want, that's what the church is supposed to be, like y'all living on mission, God does amazing stuff and we gather together, it's awesome, but he's using you, you're the, you're the army. So we're rejoicing in that, and Dave Morley, our our small group's care pastor, shared some statistics with me that made me think about a passage in Luke 15. He says this, he gave me these stats, that people are turning to Christ globally at a rate of 3,400 people per hour. I don't know if you've read Acts chapter two, but the church gets started when 3,000 people trust Christ. Acts chapter two, that's how this whole thing that is happening right now and all across the globe today got started. That means the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, is happening every 60 minutes currently. But listen to the next stat. 93% of that is happening outside of Europe and North America. Why? Do you know why? Because 61% of born-again Christians aren't even telling anybody about Jesus. not even share. They don't value the gospel. They, don't really, they haven't been wrecked. But the gospel, just, I'm going to read you a quote by C.S. Lewis. He says, just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. He gives examples. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious experience? Don't you think that a magnificent fill-in-the-blank? Whatever it is, we na- it's how we're made. We're wired. So if we don't share the gospel, one of two things has to be true. One, we don't care that people are going to hell. Five billion of them by their own confession. And I don't think that's true of most of you. So then what's the other option? We don't value the gospel. We don't get it, how valuable what's been given to us is. See, the Bible says that when one sinner repents, all of heaven rejoices. That's what I was talking about with our, our staff, is that we get a little glimpse of heaven when we see people trust Christ as their savior. What must it be like in heaven with 3,400 people trusting Christ every hour? Imagine that celebration. And imagine some of the people that you know that are in heaven right now that shared the gospel with people that then you get to lead to Christ. What must that be like for them? Amazing. Do you realize the value of the gospel you've been entrusted with? Are you faithful with the gift of the gospel? Before we move on, you may want to apply this. And some of you take notes and maybe take a mental note or what are you going to do before the next time we meet here? Who are you going to share the gospel with if it's valuable to you? If it's not valuable to you, then what's wrong? There's something wrong in your heart. What are you gonna do about it? Don't think that you're doing awesome, don't be like the church of Laodicea, we're wealthy, we've arrived, we've got all this stuff, and then Jesus says you're poor, blind, naked, it's pitiful actually, but you think you're, you're at one spot, Paul says, I, if I judge myself, I'm not a good judge, I don't even know all my heart, I don't even know all my motives, but the judge is coming, and I'm being faithful, I'm a steward of the mystery of the gospel, and then he tells us the next thing we're stewards of, and you're not gonna like this one, I promise. I don't like it, I don't think you're gonna like it. Are you faithful with your misery? Are you faithful? Are you a good steward? You've been entrusted with suffering, pain, difficulty. I just used the word misery because I wanted two M words, to be honest with you. Are, you. are you faithful with the difficulties of life? When the disasters come, when there's a divorce, a disease, some tragedy, car accident, the doctor calls, things didn't go the way you had planned, a dream gets shattered. Are you faithful with that? Because what Paul's gonna show, share with us here, and I'm gonna read to you verses uh, six through 13 in chapter four here, he's, gonna sh- he's rebuking the Corinthians because they have what's called an overrealized eschatology. And what they're doing is they're pretending like the difficulties in life are not a reality to them, like they've already arrived. And so an overrealized eschatology is when we live like the promises that Jesus has for us at his second coming are already a reality today. When they're not, well, we're in this place where we've been promised. In this world, you're going to have trouble. And so sometimes you'll hear preachers preach things like, you just need to rise above that. You just need to, if you just believe these things, and you had more faith, then you wouldn't, you wouldn't have these difficulties. And it's not true. And you live in this world, and there is pain. And it's part of God's plan. We'll talk about that. We'll see it. Let's look through here and see. And I love what he does here because these are his spiritual children and he is being sarcastic with them, which is great and affirms my parenting skills. And so watch what he does. I've applied all these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. See, that's the problem for them. They've gone beyond what is written. See, everybody believed that when the Messiah came that he would reign. As a Jew, that was one of the reasons why they rejected Jesus. They couldn't understand the suffering servant because they thought he was going to come and rule and reign. And we believe that he inaugurated, he began those promises when he came to earth but he's going to fulfill them when he comes back the second time so as Christians we're waiting for him to come and rule and reign. Now look at what he says to them. He says, I forgot where I stopped reading now but I'll just start reading again. I have applied all these things to myself and a to your benefit brothers that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. That's what they've done that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Remember what they're doing. I follow Paul, I follow Cephas, I follow Peter, or all these different guys, Apollos. For who sees anything different in you? What's unique about you? That's what he's saying to them. What do you have that you didn't receive? That means that everything in our life is grace, just by the way. And grace should be incredibly humbling. Because you can sit there and say, well, I worked really hard to get this job. Who gave you the ability to work? I got really good grades in school. You don't know how I'm studying. Who gave you your IQ? who put breath in your lungs? It's all grace. If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? As if you did it, if you earned it. And then here's where he starts being sarcastic. Already you have all you want. He uses a word there for food. You're satiated. In this life, you're completely satisfied. This shouldn't be true. This is not our home. We're not citizens here. Our citizenship's in heaven. He says, already you've become rich. Without us, and he's going to call himself in a little bit their spiritual father, he's their apostle. Without us, you've become kings. You reign. And would that you did reign. I wish that were true is what he's saying because if you reign, that means that Jesus came back. He says, and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. And then look at what he says about himself. And he sets them up as a contrast to them. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as, and you might underline this, last of all, like men, underline this, sentence to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, and learn on that, to angels and to men. He's given an imagery here that we miss. The imagery here is a parade, a triumphal parade, and what would happen then is that when a Roman general won a battle, when they went to another city, they conquered that city, they could come back to their home city and do a parade, and people would praise their army as they came through as this victorious battle. At the end of their parade would be all their trophies, all the plunder they got from ransacking the other village, other city, wherever it was they overtook, and then at the back of that were their prisoners. And the prisoners were there for entertainment. They're going to be taken to the Colosseum, thrown to wild beasts, and shred to pieces. Now, with that imagery in mind, let me read you that verse again. Well, Paul said, you rule, you reign, you're rich, but we, the apostles, are last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We're fools for Christ's sake, but you're wise in Christ. We're weak, but you are strong. You're held in honor, but we are in disrepute. For the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And they'd be offended by verse 12, and we labor working with our hands. That's why some people weren't saying they'd follow Paul because he was a tent maker, blue-collar guy. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We've become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. And so they didn't value that. Much like America, who wants to embrace suffering? And what Paul's saying to them here is, which one's more like Jesus? They hated me, they're going to hate you. We serve a crucified Messiah. And they're going, no, we rule and we reign. We're, we're, we got it all figured out. We've risen above our circumstances. And what Paul's saying is, look at our lives. Here, I'm going to tell you to imitate us in just a little bit. Um, We're embracing the suffering that God's brought into our lives because God doesn't work through that suffering. It's actually God's will that we suffer, just so you know. First Peter chapter 4 and verse 19, Peter's writing to a persecuted group of believers. And he says in First Peter chapter 4 and verse 19 that, where's my verse? First Peter chapter 4 and verse 19. He says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, your stewardship language, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. See, what Peter's talking about, and what Paul's sharing with these Corinthians, is there is suffering in this world. Jesus promised it, in this world you will have suffering. What does James say? Rejoice in your trials of many kinds. Why, because God's doing a work in it, that you're going to suffer, and it's God's will. That doesn't mean that God's the originator of suffering, just so you know. Satan can be the originator, look at Job's life, but none of it happens without passing through the hands of a sovereign God. Even Satan has to ask permission from God to bring suffering into Job's life. But what happens is when we suffer, when there's disaster, when you get that phone call, when you lose your job, when your stuff's not going right like you dreamed it would go in your marriage, like all that stuff's going on in your life, we ask why. Why is this happening? Here's the reality. The answer's complicated. Sometimes there's suffering in your life because of sin in your life. God disciplines those He loves, like a father disciplines His child. We reap what we sow. Sometimes there's difficulty and disaster and all that stuff because of sin. Sometimes there's suffering in our life because we're doing what's Right? Because of our obedience, because of our righteousness. Why are Christians getting their heads chopped off in the Middle East? Because they're sharing the gospel. So sometimes it's because of sin, sometimes it's because of faithfulness, sometimes it's just because you live in this world and it's messed up and there is sin and there is difficulty. But here's what you can know through all of it, that God always has a plan for it. Second Timothy chapter three says that if you live a godly life in this world, you will be persecuted. Matthew chapter 5 says that the blessed are the persecuted, happy are the persecuted. That's an oxymoron in our world. Remember that we're fools for Christ because the wisdom of God is foolishness to this world, and the the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. And so what Paul's saying to the Corinthians here is, no, 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 you've fallen into the trap of the wisdom of this world. You you think that you're already already ruling and you're already reigning, and and then look at our lives. We're suffering, and, and you're not. We're homeless. You're not. We're... And he's showing them the way that you embrace the suffering in your life reveals your conformity to Christ. What they're doing is they're revealing their immaturity. I was thinking about this passage this week and I was reminded of a story in 1 Kings chapter 17. In 1 Kings chapter 17, it's a story of a prophet named Elijah. It's a great prophet in the Old Testament. And oftentimes, though, if you grew up in Sunday school or you heard this story before, you've heard it told from the perspective of Elijah where God's been providing for Elijah during a drought with a raven out in the wilderness, and then God directs him to go to this, this widow who's about to die, and asks this widow to give her last food to Elijah. And we read it like that way, and we're like, oh, God is a God, he's a provider, and he'll provide through a raven, he'll provide through a widow. Have you ever thought about the story from the widow's perspective? We have some widows in our church. If you, are, if you are a widow, if you ever sat with a widow when they first lose their husband, those are some of the darkest days that you'll see on this planet. All that's lost in that moment, a loved one, life mate, protection, covering. And I don't want to take anything away from any of the widows in our church here today, but in that time, there was no life insurance. There were no jobs for women. So your husband dies? you got about three options. Remarry, beg, or become a prostitute. Those are your options. Oh, and not only did her husband die, but then God sent a drought, which is awesome that he provided for Elijah with a raven. How is he providing for this widow who has no job? There's a reason she's gathering sticks and about to die. So try and imagine the darkness this woman is in, in this, this moment. You ever been to a spot where you're like, I, I would rather die than continue on in this point in life. And you don't have to say it out loud, but with this many people here, there's people that say yes to that. Paul would say yes to that, Second Corinthians chapter 1. I know our ladies are studying that uh, on Tuesday morning together. Second Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, I despaired of life itself. Some of you are there. Some of you have been there. Like, I just wish it was over. That's where she's at. And then Elijah comes along and says, give me that bread that's in your hand. First Corinthians chapter 17, do you know what she says? This isn't bread. I am not bread in my hand. This is flour. They even have bread. In fact, let me read you some some of the verses there in 1 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings chapter 17, uh, he says to her, give me some of that bread, and then listen to what she says, uh, verse 12. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar, a little oil in a jug. And think about how pathetic this scene is. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. That's desperate. That's hopeless. Then look. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Well, oh, that's easy for you to say, Elijah. Go and do as you have said, but first. Don't read the rest. Pause. Pause if you haven't read ahead. But first. If you're in your Bible, if you turned in your Bible to 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 13, you might underline the, those words, but first. Because I find it incredibly interesting that oftentimes God has us have but first moments. She's coming to the spot where God's about to provide for her. It's like you can see the light at the end of the tunnel, but first. There's going to be a test. But first, it's like stewardship. You know the problem for the Corinthians is they wanted to skip the but first. They wanted the crown without the cross, They wanted the glory without the suffering. They wanted to be built up as God's church without being broken down of their own pride and self-centeredness. And see, here's the reality. The truth is that God will often empty you of yourself before he fills you with himself. He's gonna stretch your abilities, stretch your faith, stretch your capacity to increase your ability to glorify him. And here's another truth. The cross comes before the crown. The suffering comes before glory that brokenness comes before he builds you up. And so have you ever had a but first moment? You're headed towards, I see the goal, it's about to happen, and then, but first, I didn't have this planned. Or maybe you're in the depths like this woman that is so difficult, I'm just ready to die, but, but God's got another test for your faith. Have you ever been to the spot where God's given you more than you can handle, and then he gives you more? That's a but first moment. Ever been to the spot where it's like, hey, I can see the promotion. Here's the promotion. But first, somebody else just got it. I'm coming through. I've been walking in the valley for a year now or two years now, and, and I can see, I think, that I think I'm coming out of it. But first, you know what the but first moments are? It's God teaching you. Don't follow that temptation the Corinthians are following to. Don't follow that temptation that Jesus had when he was in the desert. See, Jesus, you can have all his kingdom. It can be yours. Bow down and worship me. Satan said, you can have the crown without the cross. It's a temptation we all face. God says, but first, but first, the cross comes before the crown. Breaking comes before building you up. See, oftentimes what God will do in our lives is he'll increase our suffering here to increase our ability to experience joy later. You ladies that are studying and and on Tuesday morning in 2 Corinthians, you know what I'm talking about. If you've been to 2 Corinthians chapter four, where it says we have this light and momentary affliction. Well, it sure didn't seem light and momentary to this widow who had lost her husband, who didn't have any money for food, who was going home to die, and then God says, give me some of your food. But in light of the weight of eternal glory, what 2 Corinthians chapter 4 tells us, verse 17 and 18 is, he's preparing us in those but first moments. See, God's doing a work in our suffering. We're not like the suffering, when we get to heaven, there's not going to be any suffering, but he uses the suffering here. Satan may originate it, but God, when Satan's ruling, has the power to overrule. He works all things together for good. Even the worst things He can use for your good and His glory. And He does it in those but first moments, where He shows you this is the moment of the cross. The crown, the crowns coming, ruling's coming, reigning's coming. But but first, see, we live between the times. We really live in a but first moment continually. But first. Look at what it says. I didn't finish reading the verse. 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 13. Make me a little cake of it. Bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. I got a little bit of flour in my hand and some oil. And if you know the story, you know what happens. She passes the test. This is God's man. Be faithful. This is God calling me to do this. And God provides. Amazing. Her and her son get to live. And God's provision keeps coming. And and, and I think to myself, I don't know what happened in her heart, but I think if I were the widow in that story, I'd probably be like, oh, God did this private thing. I'm going to publicly praise him for how oh, Jesus is awesome. There was these dark moments and there was a drop, but then he provided. And then her son dies. And that's kind of how life goes valley, up valley, up valley, peaks, mountaintop, praising Jesus. And do you know what I think I would do if my son died? If I were that widow, why me? Like two days ago, I was going, hallelujah, God provides. But I already went through the drought and I already had this. And then the sun gets raised from the dead and I'd be like, yes, Jesus is awesome. And guess what's coming? See, some of you aren't in a valley right now, but I'm gonna tell you something, you're getting ready for one. And when you go into that valley, you need to know in those butt first moments, the cross comes before the crown. He may be, he may be increasing your suffering now to increase your joy Later. Let me share this quote with you by Charles Spurgeon. Great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said this. He so said, they who dive in the sea of affliction bring up rare pearls. Let that sink in. So when you, when you go into those depths, is there's things that you learn in your suffering you learn in no other place. And you come with it. There's another parable in Matthew chapter 13. Go read it yourself. You wanna know the value of the gospel? God's entrusted you with the mysteries of the gospel. One of the ways you make them know is through your misery and how you respond. Which one looks more like Jesus? I rise above my circumstances. Or, or when I'm slandered, we endure. We entreat. When reviled, we bless. See, you've been entrusted with much. More valuable than, than a lottery ticket, I'm gonna tell you. You wouldn't give your eternal life for $181 million, would you? How are you stewarding what you have? Because a lot of us as Christians, just like that guy, that we'd go, oh, no, when we see it.